from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Nick. What are you guys doing? Nothing like being in Spain on a bike path. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Camino de Santiago. But it is a hike starting in France and ending at Santiago de Compostela in northern western Spain. And we are finishing today a 27K walk in the rain. It's beautiful. It's humbling. And I'm really enjoying it. I saw one of your posts about your bike in front of a medieval castle. Yeah, we stayed at a little hotel. We're not camping. We're staying in pensions and hotels, things like that. And one of the hotels had some bikes. So I went out in the morning and rode to this medieval castle. That was just spectacular. No one was there. I was the only one there. And it was just such a pleasure. Wow. So it's the Camino de Santiago? Yeah. It's kind of a religious walk. Apparently, St. James is buried in Santiago. And it's been a religious walk for centuries. And it starts further away over the Pyrenees in France. But we picked it up in a little town called Syria, about 112K from the finish. And we've been doing about 25K a day walking. It's really fun. My two daughters are with us and we're doing a family excursion. I highly recommend it. Some people are biking it. We're walking it. You walk from town to town and church to church. And you know we're not really religious ourselves, but a lot of people that are doing the walk are. Sounds, Sounds amazing. amazing. You're just staying at places along the way. Yeah. We made reservations in little hotels and pensions and things like that. You get up and you have breakfast with everybody else who's staying there and you put your pack on and start walking again. We usually leave about nine in the morning and get to our destination about four or five in the afternoon. Just in time to have a beer or a glass of wine and go to the hotel and take a shower and have dinner and then start the whole thing again the next day. Some people are biking and you can bike it. The bike and the foot trail coincide part of the way and then the bike trail splits off in areas and is on its own part of the way. There's people from all over the world, certainly all over Spain and Europe, but also from Asia and from Africa, we've seen people, and from America, and it's been a treat to do it with my family, one, but you end up walking for hours, sometimes on your own, and that's also a treat, just to have that kind of personal time, you know, that we don't get very often. Stop at a little cafe and have a coffee and wait for my daughter to come or my wife to come, and it's been a really special experience. And if I can change subjects, one of the great things about being in Spain right now is the Tour of Spain. And American Sepp Kuss just won. Yay. Wow. You want to talk about what's the significance of that? Well, there are three grand tours in the bike racing season. The Tour of Italy is in May. The Tour of France is in July. And the Tour of Spain, the Vuelta a España, is in September. And those are the three 21-stage races. So the person who has the lowest time over the 21 different stages is the winner of the race. And American Sepp Kuss is a domestique, a word in bike racing for someone who does the lion's share of the work but doesn't get the glory. He's on the same team with the guy, Primoz Roslik, who won the Tour of Italy, and Jonas Vindigo, who won the Tour of France. So he wasn't really expected to win the Tour of Spain. But he came out very strong in an early mountain stage and got the red jersey and then had to fight his own teammates, which got a lot of press because normally you don't attack your own teammate. 
but Primoz Roslik and Vindigo attacked Sepp Cruz. He kept the jersey, and today he won the race. So it's a special day for American cycling. The last person to win the Tour of Spain, the last American, was Chris Horner, and that was in 2013. Did you see any evidence of parking day this last weekend? It's supposed to be international. <laughs> well, luckily, I haven't seen any evidence of cars. So I'll leave that to you guys. Good for you. Well, this was parking day last weekend. Supposedly internationally, people take over parking spots with things besides cars, parks, play areas, nature. Right. Well, and, I think uh, one thing great about parking day is that it opens your eyes to how much space we give to just car storage. And it plays into this sort of bigger issue of as we try to create complete streets and create bike lanes, you're going to encroach on a drive lane or a parking lane. LA, for instance, so wildly overparked. We have way too much parking. We're never going to use it all at once. And parking day wakes us up to that, shows us other things we can do with that public space. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot about parking in uh, Donald Shoup's work, which I brought up to this professor at Smith College in Northampton, and he was out there on parking day. And here's that interview. My name is Reed Bertone Johnson. Are you a professor? Yeah, I'm faculty at Smith College in the Landscape Studies program. And what are you doing here today? Uh, today we're celebrating Parking Day. Parking Day is an international holiday of taking over parking spaces and turning them into parks. It got started by a group called Rebar in San Francisco several years ago, and the American Society of Landscape Architects liked the idea and have sort of made it an international holiday. The second Friday of every September, you can find landscape architects taking over parking spaces. Wow. How did it become an international holiday? I think it was just a fun thing and caught on. A lot of people really liked the playfulness of it. And with the development of a lot of urban design and tactical urbanism to try out urban designs on fairly low budgets and quickly and temporarily, it was a nice way to do it. What's the principle behind it? So our streetscapes don't need to be as boring as they are, and we certainly don't need as many cars as we have. So the idea of encouraging fewer cars and encouraging bike riding, but also showing people that the streetscape can be more lively and more engaging for groups of people. Yeah. So have you read The High Cost of Free Parking by Donald Chu? I have, yeah. Okay, cool. yeah. yeah. He's been on Bike Talk. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I read that. People are catching on. I think that the city of Northampton is doing a great job with allowing the restaurants to expand into the street for outdoor dining. I'm one of those people who's personally very excited about the picture Main Street redesign. I think there's a lot of good principles being applied there. So I think it's just a matter of letting it take shape and seeing how it goes. The Main Street redesign is where they're going to take away 18% of parking spaces and in return people get space to bike and walk and they get trees and things like that. Bike, walk, trees, wider sidewalks, places for people to gather, making permanent some of what we've gotten used to really enjoying in the summer with the bumped out parking spaces. There'll actually be more parking spaces in the picture Main Street redesign than exist under our current system with all the restaurants bumped out. So we're used to that. I would love to see the idea of being able to bike downtown take off. 
Yeah, right now it's unsafe, and that's part of the reason why this money is available from the state Department of Transportation because it qualifies as an especially unsafe street, right? Absolutely. It was one of the streets identified by the state as having some of the highest rates of pedestrian, bike, and car accidents. And with all of that, having the state money to take care of a project like this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I'm really excited that Northampton was able to rally around it and make it happen. So you are here showing people what we could have instead of two cars. Yeah, instead of two cars, you can have a place for a group of four or five people to play games and chalk on the sidewalk. We've got pollinator plants here, bubbles, chess and checker tables. I think the park kit, that's our group, is the only place I've seen 12-year-olds play chess with people who just wandered in off the street to see what we were up to and really community building, community building in those wide spots of the sidewalk instead of having a couple of cars. And you seem to have a small nursery in the other spot. Yeah. Today we have partners from New England Wildflower, Gutlow and Associates, Dodson Flinker, and Regenerative Design Group in Greenfield. Those are all landscape architecture and environmental consulting firms that are partnering with us today. And they had some donations of plants. Some are just for us to borrow for the day and spruce up the park. And some were giving away free pollinator plugs for people to take home. And all this for the space of two inert cars. Absolutely. We're in front of Friendly's on Main Street in Florence, directly adjacent to a parking lot that has been more than half empty all day. We are not bumping anyone from anywhere they would want to be. We're just showing what's possible in a couple of parking spaces in a place that has plenty of parking. Is this a year-round group, not just on the parking day? Park it? Yeah, so my research is this. So my students built all of the chairs and designed everything and made all of the components of the park. We pull it around with a bike and we show up lots of places. In the past, we've been at Florence Nights Out. We show up at some of the Main Street closures and then we partner with lots of nonprofits in the area to help them bring life to their block parties or to help them celebrate community garden and that sort of thing. And right now you're at one of these two-hour spots, but you could just put some quarters in a meter or something? Yeah, so actually for today, we actually pulled a permit. We paid $25, got permission from the Department of Public Works, got them to make sure it was okay with the parking office, and got signed off by the police as well. So we jumped through all of the hoops necessary to make this an entirely legitimate installation for the day. We're allowed to be here from 8 in the morning until 5 at night. But if it was two hours, you wouldn't have had to do all that, right? Yeah. If it were a two-hour spot, we would be able to be here for two hours and leave or move to another adjacent parking space. Or downtown, we could buy a bag for a meter for the day and stay longer. All right. And so we're going to take over? Yeah, I hope so. I hope more bikes, more people walking, more business for downtown. All right, cool. Well, thank you for doing your bit here. Thank you very much. Yeah. Welcome, Lee Nichols, daughter of Taylor Nichols, co-host of the podcast. So you're calling in from Spain. How is it? Yes, I am. It's beautiful. I don't know if you can hear the rain right now, but we're walking through the rain. We've done about 30 kilometers today and got another three left walking, not biking. Wow. And we hear there's a ton of people on this pilgrimage, right? Yeah. So it's a pretty famous religious pilgrimage to Santiago and people do all different stages of it. Around a thousand people walk this trail every single day in the like popular month. 
And there are people biking it too, right? There are people biking it, which is really great. They've put in some infrastructure to allow the bikes to go through because some of the trails are a bit hard to bike on. So they've made like diversions on the trail so the bikes can go through, which is amazing. Cool. Do you bike back home? So I go to UC Santa Barbara and I bike a lot to class, back home, to the library. And it's a really great way to get around. What an amazing life experience with your dad on the Camino de Santiago in Spain. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. We are loving it. It was so great talking to you. Thanks, Lee. Thank you. Thank you. While you're out there in Spain, Taylor, there's things happening in your home state of California. On the governor's desk, there's a couple of bills that relate to riding a bike. One is uh, speed camps. And, oh, wow. Uh, putting in speed camps. It's AB 645. I hope Newsom signs it because there are speed cameras all over Spain. Because we drove from Barcelona to the beginning of the Camino de Santiago, and the traffic was not speeding. There were signs that said you were entering a speed camera zone, and the speed was 120K or 90 or 80K, whatever it was in that area. And the traffic responded. And you didn't have to worry about if there were police cars on the side of the road looking to give you a ticket or something like that, which takes the whole racial aspect out of traffic stops. You get a ticket if you're speeding and you don't if you're not. There's still some question about the placement of speed cams. I just don't think you have a right to speed. There's a speed limit. The key to safety because of the physics is the speed of the car. And the key to getting people out of their cars is safety. I think this is the most important climate bill, maybe not of the year, but one of them, because you can't moach if people, if they're going to get killed on a bicycle, they just won't do it. We know that from the data. Some actual safe streets advocates have said that they would rather see streets redesigned than to have speed cams used. I think you do both. And I was talking to this city manager who they have four cops full time on traffic and speeding. It's like a million dollars of their budget every year. It's not what we want. We do not want police officers doing traffic stops. And it's a huge waste of resources that can go towards something else. So I think it's a win-win and I'm very hopeful and I really hope we get to see it. Yeah. So that's AB 645 on the governor's desk. We'll see if he signs it maybe by the time this episode airs. And as we know, you know, what happens in California doesn't really stay in California. It ends up being imported and exported to other places. When they measure the brand of a city, L.A., Hollywood, we actually have the most famous brand of any city in the world. So we have a little bit of a platform. Yeah. But we lost Taylor, which is to be expected on the Camino de Santiago in Spain. You know, the signal did not last. Let's go to Taylor's interview with Andrew Leonard, a writer for The New York Times who wrote this article, How I Turned My Errands Into Exercise, which is about getting your exercise by actually going somewhere on a bike which is a point that was touched on last week, Blue Zones. The Netherlands has made this transformation and people bite so much. It has lowered their healthcare costs, the equivalent of 3% of their GDP, <laughs> which in America would be about $70 billion. So just another reason. Yeah. If you want to talk about the cost of making places bikeable, you should look at how much you save in healthcare. Here is the interview. My guest today is a writer and an author who wrote Bots, The Origin of the New Species, but he is also a writer for Salon and Wired. But the reason that he's on Bike Talk today is because he is a reluctant exerciser. And he just had an article in the New York Times called How I Turn My Errands Into Exercise. So I want to welcome Andrew Lindard to Bike Talk. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Always happy to talk about bikes. 
what got you into riding a bike for exercise? It says that you're a reluctant exerciser. Well, I would dispute the reluctant. The problem was consistent. Those were your words, by the way. (laughs) Well, I think the reluctant was in the subhead, which was written by an editor. So I can't own that. But I've always been a biker, but I didn't do it on a consistent kind of daily active transportation style until I gave up my car in 2019. I was always kind of a boom and bust exerciser. I'd train to ride a century ride and then I'd do it. And then I'd kind of like, well, that was great. And I'd collapse back on the couch for a few months and, you know, come the spring, I'd be like time to get in shape for the recreational riding. But then in the fall of 2019, the state of California said it would give me a thousand dollars to take my minivan off the road because it was 25 years old. And I was reluctant because it had never failed a smog test or anything. But then I think three weeks later, it broke down and my mechanic said, give it up. You would have to replace the whole engine. So my kids were grown up. I thought, why not try the car-free life? See what happens. I do like to bike. I got a used bike trailer off Craigslist for $50 and, and said, this is the new life. And the magic of it was what it did to my motivation. Normally, if it's raining or if I see it super windy, I'm like, I'm not going to ride up the East Bay Ridge and that. That's no fun. But if I got to get my groceries and it's 50 degrees out and the fog is coming in, I'm like, well, I still got to get my groceries. And that really triggered a change in habit that allowed me to kind of maintain my exercise. I found I was like, I'm getting out there every couple of days now, which had long term positive consequences. Right, right. Well, last week on the show, we had Bella Chu, who works at Stanford University, and she talked a lot about how humans have actually evolved to walk seven to 10 miles a day or to just exercise a certain amount every day. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing. Well, it's funny. We all know, we've all been told, we've all heard that exercise is good for you. When I started to actually research the academic literature on exercise motivation and exercise, I just could not believe exercise is great for treating depression. It's great for preventing diabetes, cardiovascular issues. Literally, it is the single best thing we can do for ourselves. And not much of it is required. So the idea of Aaron's exercise helped my mood. It obviously helped my fitness. Right. It just made me feel like a better, more active, more engaged person. Sticking with this idea that exercise makes us feel better, I would even add that biking is even better on top of that. Just because you're moving at this perfect pace, Mm -hmm. the wind is going through your hair, it's not hard on your body the way running is. Yeah, I could go on forever. In my career, I studied China and technology, and I have kind of a minor interest in Taoism. And I would argue that the bicycle is the kind of exemplary Taoist instrument, the way to kind of get through the world without disturbing the world. And when I'm out there, it's like, obviously I'm moving, but I also feel like I'm not moving. I'm in tune with the world. Right. Well, that's your next book now. No, the Tao of the bike or something like that. I think the title will be Biking to Costco, but you know, that's... (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about that really quick because I do not use a trailer. I have panniers on the back of my bike and I can put a fair amount of groceries in there. But um, talk to me about your choice of getting a trailer and is it a pain in the butt? Do you worry about it getting stolen or? Um, Well, it's not a pain in the butt. 
It's a very simple assembly. I am not particularly worried about my burly being stolen because it was $50 off of Craigslist and nobody who is going to Costco is looking for a used bike. <laughs> right, right. It's interesting what you say about panniers, because as I said, I was at Costco yesterday and I saw more bikes than I'd ever seen. And several of them were e-bikes with panniers. And I was thinking, how does that work? Because Costco is bulk items. Right. And it's not really efficient to take a backpack or some panniers. You need a trailer. There are lots of trailers out now that are more designed for this kind of work. I love it, especially up here in Northern California. And in Berkeley, where we have a lot of kind of dedicated, you know, post-hippie cyclists, there are so many kinds of trailers and bikes modified to take multiple children and front-loaded trailers, back-loaded trailers. It's like this is the greatest age for bike trailers ever right now. Well, I do think we're on a bit of a momentum shift with biking. Is the trailer easy to hook up? Do you leave it on all the time? You just... Put it on when you use it. I just put it on when I use it. It takes less than a minute to hook up. Works fine. You use a phrase in your article, intrinsically generated motivation. What does that mean exactly? Well, one of the things I discovered when researching my story is that exercise motivation, there's a lot of academic interest in it because the number one thing that we could do for public health is get people exercising more. And people aren't. 70% of the country doesn't do 20 minutes a day of exercise. So there's a lot of interest in figuring out what motivates people. And that word intrinsic comes from a whole school of motivational theory called self-determination theory. And that looks at all these different kinds of motivations and it puts them on a spectrum and it tries to figure out which ones work and which ones don't. And this is vastly simplifying because it gets incredibly complicated when you drill down. But very generally speaking, extrinsic motivation, stuff that comes from outside yourself, like say the doctor saying, if you don't get on the treadmill, you're going to get diabetes or your partner saying, I don't like the look of your pot belly. Can you go do something about it? That might get you up and out of the house, but it's not going to turn into consistent motivation. There are multiple studies showing that this kind of thing, it's like going to the gym in January. By the end of January, you're not doing anything. Intrinsic motivations come from within yourself. So you might bike because you love to bike. You might bike because you know it's good for your health. Talking with one of these exercise psychologists, we kind of realized that why it worked so well for me is A, I like to bike. B, I like to get done. So Mm -hmm. if I'm biking to Costco, I'm taking care of two things that make me really happy. And that works for maintenance. Intrinsic motivations are easy to maintain. You're going to keep doing them. It sounds kind of like stupidly simple. If you like to do something, you're going to keep doing it. But the, the the important part for me was realizing that these outside motivations don't work. That being told to do something or a lot of people use a lot of kind of tricks and gamify their existence. Like I'm going to train for this hill. I'm going to reward myself. Again, most of that stuff doesn't work for maintenance. Right. You got to find what serves you, what serves yourself. Right. It could be it's good for the environment and that makes you happy. Things like that. Well, let me ask you, if you're riding to Costco and places like that, Costco is designed for cars. The mm-hmm. roads in and out of Costco, the parking lot itself is very difficult to navigate on a bike probably. Do you feel safe when you go out on your bike to run errands? Um, well, I feel safe 99% of the way because... I live in the East Bay, uh, the San Francisco Bay area, and we've got a really wonderful biking infrastructure. 
-hmm. There is a freeway that goes along the bay that Costco is perfectly situated to get all that freeway traffic. And we have Mm -hmm. a bay trail between that freeway and the bay. And there are now two bike bridges over the bay. The first one was about 15, 20 years ago, but a new second one is just about to be finished. There is a great little spot. I love it every time I use it. It's called the Buchanan Bikeway Connector to the Bay Trail. And it goes under two freeways and over a railroad track. And it took the dedicated efforts of bike activists, probably 20 years of going to planning commissions and city council meetings and getting in on the planning effort and getting this thing done. And if you've got a heavy trailer, it winds its way at a very low grade to get over the railroad tracks. And every time I go over it, I think, thank you, Mr. Bike Actress. But then you're right. You get into the Costco parking lot and you're like a wild animal. (laughs) You know, no one expects you to be there. And then you just have to be totally defensive minded and slow. And we've got to change that. That's probably not the first on everybody's priority list to make Costco more bike friendly. Maybe not Costco, but our built environment in general. Yeah. So the bike infrastructure, dedicated bike lanes, these kind of connectors that help you get through the really gnarly parts. I'm 61 and I can remember living in New York City. The bike trail that they now have around the whole Manhattan, that thing is fantastic. It's beautiful. And people are on it all the time. And the first time I rode it, I was like, this is progress. Then I almost got run down by an e-bike and I was like, well, maybe... (laughs) That's okay, though. It's (laughs) better to get hit by an e-bike than an SUV. This is true. This is true. Well, there was an article in the LA Times just last week about how San Francisco and Los Angeles both are failing spectacularly at achieving Vision Zero. And of course, Vision Zero is that plan to make zero road deaths by the year 2025. I think it was started in San Francisco in 2014, started in LA in 2015. And we're really at the very end of that decade. And this article was talking about how both of these two major metropolitan areas are going the wrong way. Road deaths are up. Distressing, for sure. But the trend line of going up, part of it is the cars are getting bigger. Yeah. And yeah. going faster. And going faster. But I think the most important thing for bikers is we got to be out there making people used to us. Right. And the more of us out there, the more we can kind of force people to learn that we're there. We have to be defensive. I'm always trying to anticipate that something might go disastrous. Right. Well, it's possible. That's why the numbers have gone up, because there are more people yeah. biking, at least in the short run. So the numbers have gone up. We've been talking a lot about on Bike Talk that the main reason more people don't bike is because they don't feel safe on the road. Your story, both written and lived, about choosing to bike for exercise and all the benefits that you've gotten, why do you think it's taken so long for NIMBYs or for people to fight for a bike lane going in on their neighborhood street or the city council voting to increase bike lane or bike infrastructure? I agree. When I talk to people anecdotally, the fear of getting injured is a big deal. And that is just the slow march of progress to get more bike lanes and especially dedicated bike lanes. You know, just putting sharrows up on a street is not going to do it. Doesn't work. I used to be a reporter in San Francisco for the Bay Guardian. And the most ridiculous thing was that putting in new bike lanes was delayed maybe a decade or more by one guy 
who hated bikers yeah. using our environmental regulations against us. Right. And it was just so frustrating. Meanwhile, in Berkeley, we're building bridges over the freeway and it's great. You see right. more bikers all the time. But I'm encouraged. I see more people on multimodal transportation, mobile right. transportation all the time. I see it in New York City. I see it here at Berkeley. I go on a campus at UC Berkeley and <laughs> everyone's on a scooter now. It's great. So I'm optimistic. If a 61-year-old man can ride his bike with a trailer to Costco and bring home 54 rolls of paper towel, then I think that's a good sign for the future. Oh, yeah. We can all do it. Everyone can do yeah. it. Well, I do think that articles like yours in publications like the New York Times go a long way in opening the eyes of non-serious bikers to the idea of, God, maybe I can ride to the store or the post office or the bank or whatever errands they have to run. So Andrew Leonard, thanks for the article and thanks for coming on Bike Talk. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Sorry, you guys, am I back or not? Yeah, you're back. I, I keep <laughs> dropping out, but that's because I'm in the middle of nowhere on this trail. So it's amazing that I could be a part of this conversation with you guys. So thanks for putting up with me dropping in and out. We're glad you can make it. I wanted to say that the infrastructure changes that I'm seeing throughout Spain, mainly in Barcelona, it's transforming and it's transformative. It's becoming a, a much more livable city. And I was in Paris this summer and I saw it too. It's just really incredible how quickly they have transformed this really car-centric city into a place where you can bike. I was biking without a helmet all over the city and you know how cautious I am. This great article popped up on Streets Blog. I don't know if you guys saw it. It's a commentary by Roger Ruddick, and he went to Paris, and it's called The Paris Bike Boom is Incroyable. Roger's a San Francisco Streets Blog writer, right? Yeah. And I wanted to read just a few quotes by it and get your reactions. He starts it off by saying he believes that people in this field, in the safe and livable streets field, have an obligation to travel to countries and cities with good bike infrastructure to experience it for themselves. Planners, engineers, transportation leaders, because otherwise you end up iterating, this is his quote, which is another way to say experimenting on humans and designs that have already failed in other countries, and then we're just ignoring best practices. Just keeping going, he said, I've never seen such in-your-face, undeniable proof that a city committed to change and to safety can really do this. And Paris is changing all over. And he has a great term. The idea is to stop the dangerous snake. And I should say, it's not actually his term. It's by Dine Van Osteren, a Dutchman who works for UNESCO and wrote the book, Why Not Bike? When cars are allowed to be in the same space as bikers, it's like a huge dangerous snake in the street, threatening anyone who's not in, you know, two to three tons of metal with an impatient motorist who wants to pass you in the same street. We call them sharks on the show. And then he goes on and he says, I didn't actively take notes. I just listened. And he says, that's what everyone in the Bay Area and most places in the U.S. need to do is the Dutch and Danish have done it. And we need to listen with humility. <laughs> These folks have figured it out. We have not. And all you have to do is go to Paris and look around. He cites two examples. Engineers continue to talk about bikes when they actually build for cars. 
He's heard planners say they only use plastic bollards, not metal, because they don't want to get sued by drivers. That's so terrifying. And that they only paint bike lanes with paint so that it can double as a breakdown lane for cars. And then his final little button to the great article, this great commentary, is that this idea of experimenting on humans is, you know, something considered a serious crime. And we know what works. Let's stop doing what doesn't work. We don't mix sidewalks in cars. We just keep trying to make something so patently unsafe pretending that we can engineer safety into something that's like cars and small children, cars and vulnerable road users, they don't go together. And what's the speed you want the car going when they hit a child? And every single person I've ever asked that question of, the answer is zero. I don't want people getting hit by cars. Yeah, that's right. But we lost Taylor again, but we have another interview with our colleague, Lily Hoffman Strickler, and here it is. I would like to welcome our guest today. Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Jenna Berman, and I work for the Oregon Department of Transportation. And what is your background in biking? How did you get involved with this department and biking advocacy? We talked a little bit about that off camera, but for the listeners, could you talk a little bit about your background in biking and biking advocacy? Yeah, sure. So I just did the math the other day and I realized I was at 15 years, which was kind of interesting and exciting. My role today at the Oregon Department of Transportation, which I'll call ODOT, we love our acronyms and bureaucracy. So (laughs) at ODOT, the title is Active Transportation Liaison. So as you probably know, what we used to call bicycle and pedestrian stuff, we now call active transportation because we have all these different types of mobility devices these days, our scooters, our one wheels, all these things. So Active transportation is my current title, but I got here by way of Bicycle Colorado, where I was at the state level bike advocacy group in Colorado doing advocacy and education for about eight years. And I started with teaching Safe Routes to School programs. So it went from wanting to be in the classroom, teaching kids how to ride bikes and talking about how to do it safely, to kind of advocacy and working with communities to do planning work around how to plan for longer term projects that might improve infrastructure to getting more and more interested in getting into the infrastructure side of things. So that led me to ODOT. During my research, obviously, I found you associated with the Oregon Coast bike route. For listeners who might not know, it's a very expansive bike route. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of these details, but it runs, I think, 370 miles. Yep, that's about right. The length of the coast of Oregon. Some people ride it all the way from Canada to Mexico. Wow. Because in a way, there's a Washington route and a California route. I've heard people who've done the whole thing say that Oregon's really great and it stands out because of our hiker-biker campsites. We kind of have this infrastructure along the way that's really supportive of people stopping to camp. You don't have to have a reservation, which is really tricky. If you're riding or hiking into the campground, you have a guaranteed spot, which is a big deal. And state parks here in Oregon's made some really great improvements to those sites, including like lockers that you can charge your devices in and lock them in and stuff like that. So there's some really neat infrastructure in place for people that are riding the coast. What we know is about 95% of people ride southbound. 
in the summer because the winds yes the I've heard it's a lot harder to go the other way yeah <laughs> and when you're out there you really feel it I wrote it in 2012 before I started this job and I wrote it and then I started my job at ODOT years later and what happened in about 2018 was we realized that the Oregon Coast bike route was designated in the early 1980s or right around 1980 and since then a lot of things have changed not only have traffic volumes and demand for the coast and travel and tourism changed but what we know about bike infrastructure has changed a lot and our understanding of what cyclists want out there or what supports cyclists being out there that type of thing so that's changed a lot and so we decided to it's a relook at the route not a changing the whole route but a saying hey this today here's where it goes from here to here and what could be some potential future investments and improvements to make it better Yes, you're going into this a little bit. The biking culture in Oregon is a little bit different than that of LA or Massachusetts, which is where a lot of our listeners are based. Based on some of the research I was doing, it's interesting to see bikes are legally considered vehicles in Oregon. While in California, Massachusetts, they have the same rights and responsibilities as cars, they're not legally considered vehicles. So did that play any part in you relooking at it? Is there ways that the implementation of the bike route has been affected just because you're riding on the shoulder? Most of the bike route is along US 101. It's actually on the highway. And that is because it has the access to the beach and the ocean. And it has the incredible vistas and everybody, whether they're in their car or on a bike, that's what they come to the Oregon coast for. When we revisited the route, we knew that while traffic volumes have picked up, we were still looking at this route for people who are pretty confident cyclists. The type of cyclist that's out there today has to be pretty confident and willing to ride on a shoulder next to quite a few vehicles, including logging trucks on their left. It was really hard. I will tell you that one of the hardest things about this project, which took us two years, was that the team of people working on it, myself included, and many of us come from a bike advocacy background and we're committed to the way we want to design things today, which is not for cyclists that are vehicular cyclists or for people that are the confident and the fearless cyclists, which is what we used to do. And now we have all these other things that we talk about, all ages and abilities from eight to 80, right? We have these other words, complete streets. Bike advocacy has evolved immensely in the US. And unfortunately, the infrastructure hasn't caught up yet to our philosophical evolution. From a philosophical standpoint, we have evolved from this share the road concept which is very much geared toward that vehicular cyclist to a complete streets concept, which is geared toward how can we help people of all ages and abilities feel comfortable getting around, whether they're biking, walking or driving. And so when we looked at the Oregon Coast bike route, it was this complete different mindset because we've all been working toward this complete streets thing and trying to think about all ages and abilities. And what that points us to is separation. We're talking about separation from where the cars are. It was really tough for the team because we were not looking at doing a separated path. I was going to ask about any safety implications. We just don't have the funding and the funding landscape today. So we had to kind of step back and say, okay, who's our user group that we're looking at for this plan? And for this plan, it is the confident cyclist. 
And that was so contrary to all this other work that we've been doing. And so what we really ended up having to do was to say, okay, it's a pretty confident users, right? That's who's going to ride 300 plus miles on mostly highway. A four foot shoulder was our minimum standard. And so then we reassessed the whole route based on looking at things like shoulder widths. Okay, where could we do better here? Striping, where could we do better there? And then where is there just a complete gap in the system? Where is there just a complete gap with no bike infrastructure at all? And then what could be a solution there? What is the greater biking culture in Oregon like? Do you get a lot of these diehard warriors people? Yeah. Yeah, the warriors. I would be so interested to know, and I don't know the breakdown of how many people riding the coast are Oregon warriors, as you say, or are from other places. And one of the things that's so cool about the Oregon Coast bike route is that it does attract people from around the world. I have a region that I cover in ODOT. And it includes the coast from Astoria to Florence, which is kind of the midway point. That's where we get a lot of Bike Talk users downloading Bike Talk in Florence. So a little over half of the Oregon Coast bike route is in my purview, but it's pretty neat that it has a big drop. In Oregon in general, how do you see the bike culture playing out? Is there a big ratio of people on bikes compared to cars or places like hotels can have bike pumps put out or you can bring your bike inside? I don't know how much of it permeates outside of the bike culture. Oregon does have a long tradition, I think, of sort of pushing the needle toward thinking about all modes of travel. Portland's the hub, though. And you kind of hinted at this earlier, I think, when you were asking about the legal standing in Oregon of bicyclists being considered a vehicle and kind of how that might impact other things. From what I can tell, Oregon's been really focused on progressing this bike culture within the roadway prism. So in Oregon, you'll see a lot of green pavement markings or green paint. You'll see a lot of neighborhood greenways. You'll see bike signals. You'll see tubular markers or kind of bollards put up to try and create protected areas or separated bike facilities. And you're seeing those in other places too. But in other places, you get more miles of those paths because there's funding tied to building paths. So those other states had either more right-of-way or more funding available to build infrastructure outside of the roadway right-of-way. Now, I'm getting a little nerdy here, but Oregon has a law associated with our gas tax that requires that our bicycle and pedestrian money be spent within the roadway right-of-way, on or along our highways or roadways. And so Oregon has had to look at this curb-to-curb space from sidewalk to sidewalk, curb-to-curb, and say, what can we do in here, but most of our system is within that roadway. Do you get a lot of pushback from the drivers for having to share the roadway with bikers? I can tell you every roadway with reconfiguration that I work on or anytime I'm looking to grow a bike lane or add vertical separation to create a separated space, it's controversial. We have a really, really mobilized and strong trucking industry here in Oregon and I have to take projects to them to be approved on certain roadways that are major trucking routes and US 101 is one of them. So if I ever looked to add a vertical element to a wide shoulder to say, hey, I want to add protection and visibility for these cyclists over here and the Oregon Coast Trail hikers over here. 
I would have to take it to the trucking stakeholder group and get their support. I'm really interested in expanding the bicycle space and the protection for people riding. Mm -hmm. And those things are kind of fundamentally opposed when the space gets tight. Anytime I go into a smaller rural Oregon setting, which I do a lot and say, hey, folks, let's talk about improving the biking and walking connectivity and talk about solutions and talk about what that might look like. I get a lot of, but we don't want to be Portland. So we were talking earlier in the show about the California speed camera bill, AB 645, and it's going to the governor's desk. And we wanted to understand the physics of speed and why it's so important. So we brought Dr. Grace Peng, the bicycling physicist from the beach cities, onto the show to help us understand the physics. You are a physicist and a bicyclist and a bike activist. Tell us about speed cameras and why this bill is so important. It's nice to be here again. I think that people are becoming more cognizant that heavier cars are more deadly. I think they said that SUVs are 80% more likely to kill someone than if they were in a medium-sized sedan. People don't realize it goes up with the speed squared, and we're very, very vulnerable when we're outside of a metal cage. So speed kills because it's the energy transfer to the human body that does so much damage to people, so much trauma. Remember, kinetic energy is M times V squared. V squared for 20 miles per hour is 400. V squared for 30 miles per hour is 900. So just that 10 miles per hour between 20 to 30, you're doing more than twice the bodily injury, twice the damage to someone. 20 miles an hour to 30 miles an hour, both feel actually quite slow. But 30 miles an hour, you have a 50% chance of dying. Exactly. And it's even worse because of the geometry of the bumper and the height of children or people in wheelchairs. We know that speed kills. And that's why we do everything possible to slow down the speed at which the people inside of the cars decelerate. You'll notice that they have crumple zones. And when they have a crumple zone, you're lengthening the amount of time of the collision. Not only is the car absorbing some of the impact and dissipating the energy, but you're also making the deceleration of the person that's slammed against their steering wheel or slammed against their seatbelt. You're giving that a longer time so that the energy transfer to them isn't so great. We have airbags, we have crumple zones, we have seatbelts. We do all these things to protect the occupant inside of the car. And we are doing absolutely nothing about people outside the car. When you look at the carbon budget of Americans, it's cars, electricity, and beef. But why are we so blind about cars and the damage that they do to the environment, to humans? What do you think is the safe speed for a car going if they're going to interact with a vulnerable road user or a child? I think that 20 is plenty. At 20, people have more reaction time and they're less likely to hit someone. And if they hit someone, there's like a 10% chance that they will kill someone. And I think 10% is already pretty high. Only in the U.S., when it comes to cars, do we have an acceptable coal rate. What exactly is a coal rate? What does that stand for? You know, like that we're going to kill 8,000 pedestrians a year and 1,000 bicyclists a year. You know, when we talk about like, why do we have to make these changes? Tire dust. Tell us about tire dust. 
Well, do you remember when we talked to Nick Marin of Emissions Analytics and he had these sensors underneath the car? And so he was measuring not just the tailpipe emissions, which we've been regulating for a long time, but he was also measuring how much stuff and the composition of the stuff that cars are shedding through the tires and the brake dust or breakdown of the road materials. Cars are constantly shedding the top layer of their tires. That's what tire wear is. That's why you have to buy new tires. These tire crumbs, they may start out bigger, but as more and more cars roll over them, each time they're grinding this stuff so that it's finer and finer until finally it's a PM 2.5, which is it's less than 2.5 microns. A human hair is like 100 microns or something. These are microscopic, very, very small. It's a lot of stuff and we're breathing it in. Like when you're jogging along a road or something and your nose runs when you're jogging and you blow your nose and it's black, right? Those are the larger particles that were caught in your sinuses. The smaller particles end up in your lung. And not only do they end up in your lung, but they end up in the fine air passageways. And then it gets into your bloodstream and the 2.5 is actually small enough to get into your brain and cause a stroke. I think the LA Times and a lot of the newspapers have been doing articles about how car tires have this family of chemicals in it that kill the salmonids. Salmonids are fish that spend part of their lifetime in freshwater and part of the time in the ocean. And so the salmonid survival rate in freshwater or in estuaries, you know, in California, we live along the coast in the estuaries and all of our tire crumbs wash into coastal waters and the estuaries. And this is one reason why fish populations have just plummeted. It's no exaggeration that cars are the primary cause of air pollution, water pollution, and climate change in California. And we're nowhere near doing what is necessary to keep us and the environment safe. I mean, that's on the list of reasons we have to make these changes. EVs, climate, the LAO Legislative Analyst Office report that you shared with me. Tell us about why we have to do this. California, we have really big goals for ourselves because we think of ourselves as being environmental and as being forward-looking and proactive and doing what is necessary and a model for the country, right? But then our real actions don't really follow through. The LAO, they actually critiqued our lofty goals and how far we have gone in terms of meeting our lofty goals. And they said that we have no coherent plan to actually reach our goals. Originally, they were going to lower the vehicle miles traveled by 25%. But through our own inaction and being so far behind, now we have to reduce our VMT by 30%, not 25%. Can we talk about EVs for one second? Because you actually were on the podcast talking with Costa Samaras that EVs can't scale in time to address our car emissions, correct? Right, because the supply chain for the batteries just isn't there. This is one reason why the car industry is having such a hard time meeting their EV production goals. They don't have enough battery materials. In terms of our climate goals, we have to lower the amount of driving we do because we know EVs will not scale in time because we waited too long. Vehicle miles traveled is how we measure our car trips, VMT. The state of California produced this report out of the LAO that we need to reduce our VMT to meet our climate goals. Tell us, why do we have to lower VMT? 
When you electrify the same size vehicle, if you swap one sedan for an electric sedan, your CO2 per mile traveled is cut about in half, sometimes two thirds, based on how clean your electricity grid is. But we have to reduce our transportation emissions by 90%. So just going to electric car without reducing the number of miles that people drive is not going to get us to that 90% thing, because that's only going to get us one half or two thirds. How soon do we need to do that? The sooner and the greater the reduction you do now, the more of the natural world we can save, the more people we can save. You and I are going to be fine, but it's the people in Bangladesh or in the Solomon Islands, they're not going to be fine. So the more we can reduce our CO2 emissions and the faster we can do it, the more people will be able to stay alive. I think we all agree that we have to do something. And I think that bikes are the positive solution to this really horrific problem. Dr. Grace and Lindsay, thank you so much for this interview. And can we end with a bike joy, Dr. Grace? What is a moment when you've had some transcendent joy on your bike that you can remember? I bicycle on my e-bike and I show all my neighbors my e-bike. And as I was waiting in my garden, my next door neighbor pulled up and he had bought an e-bike and he had brought his kids home from daycare with it. And the little kids, like they were facing each other and they were having a conversation. These little kids are having a conversation as they're biking home. Now he has a full-size minivan. It's still a big jump to go from a minivan getting like 23 miles per hour gallon or 20 miles per gallon in the city to an e-bike. Bikes are our happiest form of transportation. They They really are. You know, when you put your kid in a car seat and they don't want to, and they do the stiffies to make sure you can't buckle them down, you never see a kid do the stiffies to avoid getting on a bike. Thank you, Dr. Grace Pang. What's the name of your blog? Badmomgoodmom.blogspot.com. You post new things pretty regularly, right? Yeah, it's about the intersection of science and being a mom. When I see the media getting the science wrong, I'll explain a more nuanced thing about what the papers that they're quoting actually prove and don't (laughs) prove. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Grace. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.
on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and run it all around, run it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and run it all around, run it all around. Get that car out of my way, I wanna ride my bike today. Keep me fit, get me there, I won't go sinking up the alley behind the daily grind. I'll let your mind unwind, give us life, pretend to lie. Oh, catch yourself a bike. Oh, catch yourself a bike.